And John chapter 2. Is it up there? Okay. Okay, so verses 1 to 12. On the third day, so this is Jesus changes water into wine. Different wine. Okay. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. And we have a sermon. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry about the reading. Um, we have a guest speaker today. Um, his name's Al Gibbs. And so uh, just for you know who he is, I'm going to ask just quick questions. So Al, could you tell us just who you are, what your family is like, that sort of thing? Mm, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real joy to be here. I'm from St. Andrew's Church, which is an associated church to Charlton. It's mother church, yeah. It's a mother church, and I work as an associate minister there. I've just been in Hong Kong for about a year or so, I've come from the UK, I'm married, and my wife and I have a, a little daughter, Chloe, who's just over a year old. Fantastic. And have you found Hong Kong to be a good place to live? And do you have a favorite date spot that you, <laughs> you want us to go to now? Yeah, we do really like Hong Kong. I guess there's always a bit of a danger of culture shock when you come to a new place. And I think we were expecting a little bit of culture shock. We've both lived overseas, and we were expecting a little bit of that. But uh, actually, I, we haven't had too much. We've just really loved Hong Kong. It's, I, think it's, I think Hong Kong is a fabulous city that's got everything. You know, the mountains, the sea, the, the very vibrant city and, and everything. There's lots of places we like. I have to admit that we haven't been as adventurous as we should have been exploring Hong Kong. And we're going to blame that partly on the baby because it's a little bit harder to see everything when you've got a tiny little baby strapped to you. We, we do like going to the beach from time to time. Yeah. I think that's one of the pluses about Hong Kong. There's not that many nice beaches in the UK. <laughs> that's true. Um, and uh, uh, have you always been a minister or did you do something else before? <laughs> 
Uh, not always been a minister. I, I studied engineering and then I worked in engineering for a short time. I guess designing schools and houses really? and things like that, which, which I quite enjoyed. Yeah. Fantastic. And what do you like, what do you enjoy about being a minister? Oh, there's so many things to enjoy, <laughs> so many privileges. I think one of the things I enjoy is meeting with individuals one-to-one -to, -one to read the Bible. So I've got sort of three or four folk that I meet with quite regularly, and we just crack open the Bible and have a look at a passage for a short while and, and talk about how it changes our lives and, and pray about that briefly. And that's a, that's a real privilege to be able to do. And I guess anyone can do that. We've just got slightly more time to do it. And is there any thing that you like sort of specifically about being a minister in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong? You know, I think there's huge opportunities here. I, I, that's probably true in some ways in any part mm. of the world, but I think there are huge opportunities in Hong Kong, partly because there's so many people coming through, partly because it's a part of the exciting part of the story in China, what's happening there. And, and also, I think Hong Kong's like a global base into the whole of Southeast Asia. You've Absolutely. got most of the world just a short flight away. And I think that does give doors open for the gospel. Absolutely. It's a real joy to uh, have you. Uh, let me just pray for you, as, uh, for, for us, as we sit uh, under God's word. And we thank you so much uh, for the gift of the Spirit, and we pray now that you would prepare our hearts for your word to be sown, um, that, that we would be fertile grounds for your word, that it might grow and bear fruit in the way that we live. We pray that you'll use all to, uh, to, to speak your word faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I think it was the former U.S. President Abraham Lincoln who said that if you took all of the people who've ever fallen asleep in church and you laid them end to end, then they'd all be a lot more comfortable. Now, I guess I, I guess it's a bit of a cheap shot, but he, he has a he has a point there that sometimes church is a place where people fall asleep. And I remember quite vividly in my last church, someone falling asleep, and it actually took place in a carol service. So it was in the evening, the lights were dim, you couldn't see all that clearly. And the guy who, who fell asleep was quite a big chap, and he not only fell asleep, but he started to snore really, really, really loudly. And it was a bit disconcerting because you couldn't exactly see where the snore was coming from. And the few people around him who could kind of see felt a bit embarrassed, so they didn't poke him in the ribs, and he just snored on through the sermon. It, it was a little bit distracting. Now, now, I guess he was maybe just a, a little bit tired, I don't know, but I suppose Christianity has a little bit of a reputation of perhaps not being the most exciting thing. Sometimes Christians are perceived as killjoys. Sometimes Christianity is perceived as a list of do's and don'ts, where most of the do's are don'ts. And probably if you spoke to the average person and you asked them what would they like to do to have a good time, most people are not going to say, tell you what I know, I'm going to go to church. Well, some people, I think, would push it even further. And they'd say, well, look, it's not just that Christianity is boring. It's that Christians and God is trying to destroy our fun. So listen to how the philosopher Aldous Huxley put it. He said, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves 
in our erotic revolt, we would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Now, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but what he's saying there, essentially, is that the, the moral worldview which was given by Christians and given by God is something that he disagreed with because he felt like it was trying to constrain his fun. There were certain things that he wanted to do, which is, it seems, to explore his sexual freedom, that he felt like Christians and God was getting in the way of. And so he just decided, together with some of his friends, to pretend that this world had no meaning whatsoever and that God didn't exist. Now, I disagree with his conclusions, but I think that at least he's been quite honest about the way that he feels about Christianity. But when we look at the Bible, what we discover is that God is not a God who's trying to take away our joy and the pleasure in our lives. And that's certainly true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't a killjoy. Instead, in the reading that we've just had in John's Gospel, an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ, what we see is Jesus not a killjoy. Instead, he's the person who brings the party. And it, it all starts at a wedding in somewhere called Cana. So look with me at verses 1 to 3. Well, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So this takes place at a place called Cana. Cana was in the region of Galilee, and Jesus was from a nearby town called Nazareth. So it's quite likely that he had friends and family in Cana. That seems to be the reason why Jesus' mother has also been invited along to go to the event. Now, weddings are, are quite often rather elaborate affairs, and I don't know if any of you were watching the royal wedding back in England yesterday. We were certainly clicking on some of the photos to see the wedding dress and all of the people arrayed there. Meghan Markle getting married to Prince Harry. They're quite often elaborate affairs even today. But back in those days in the ancient Near East, quite often the wedding wouldn't last one day. No, it might last a whole week. And it was only polite to invite practically everyone you knew. So you might have to invite the whole village. And that is probably the reason why not only Jesus was there, but also his disciples as well. Just kind of everyone went. But I think it's very interesting that Jesus went along to the wedding as well. He didn't say, oh, no, no, you guys go. I'm going to just stay home and pray. I'm just going to stay home and memorize Hebrew literature and Bible verses. You guys go along to the wedding. I'm not interested in that kind of thing. No, Jesus went to the wedding as well. And all the way through the Gospels, what we see is that the kind of person that Jesus was was someone who was willing to mix with all sorts of people, and willing to enjoy himself with them. He wasn't afraid, or he wasn't against pleasure. Now, it is certainly true that Jesus did teach that there are some things that we should do, and that there are some things that we shouldn't do. He did prohibit certain kinds of activities and behaviors, but those things weren't prohibited ultimately because God and Jesus wants to end our joy or to limit our joy, it's instead because he knows that those things are destructive. 
You might even say that Jesus is trying to maximize our long-term joy and not just let us give in to short-term pleasures. But he's not against pleasure per se, and there he is at this wedding. Now, now you know what weddings are like. Le- weddings are logistical nightmares, as, as enjoyable as they are. And I imagine that that would have especially been the case if you've practically invited the whole village, because you've, you've got to try and make sure that everybody gets a plate of food and everyone gets a glass of wine. And this is where they started to run into trouble, because they ran out of wine. Now, you can imagine the kind of shame that that would have brought running out of wine. It was a shame and honor culture. So it would have, it would have brought shame on the family. But more than that, there seems to be a little bit of evidence, historical evidence from documents from around that time, that actually there was a kind of a legal obligation to provide at the wedding. And that that obligation fell on the groom and that if the groom didn't provide, well, he could even get sued by his in-laws. That wouldn't be a very good start to the relationship with the in-laws getting sued by them. Now, now part of the reason why there might have been this obligation is because many of the guests probably would have given some kind of gift. And in a way, they would have expected something back. Now, I, I don't know what exactly the modern equivalent would be in Hong Kong, but it might be a little bit like running out of food at a wedding. So, you, you know, most of us have been to weddings and we know what it's like. We expect probably the, the regular 10-course wedding buffet. And before we go to a wedding, what do we do? Well, we go online to the restaurant and we check how much it costs for a wedding buffet. And then people get out their money and they put it in the lycee packet. So imagine if all of those guests are there and they, you know, if it's a really fancy hotel, maybe they've handed over 1,000 or 2,000 per guest and they've handed that money over. Imagine if you're sat around the wedding table and after three courses in, they run out of food. I mean, that would be seriously embarrassing. It would be the sort of thing that people might be talking about for years to come. And so Jesus' mother comes to him, and she knows the situation, and she loves the family, and she knows that Jesus, her son, who's really so much more than just her son, is the one who's able to do something about it. So she comes to him, and she tries to persuade him. Now Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? It sounds slightly abrupt in the English. It's less abrupt in the Greek. But still, what he was trying to say to her is, is, look, my my hour has not really yet come. My time has not really yet come for me to step into the limelight. He's reluctant to get involved. But eventually, somehow, she managed to have her way, and she persuades him. And so she says to the servants, look, just do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. So from this awkward situation, the next thing that we see is an astonishing sign. Look with me at verse 6 and 7. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, the reason why they needed these jars is because they didn't have modern plumbing like we have modern plumbing. They would have been coming into the banquet from the outside street, which would have been 
very dirty. People had open-toed sandals. There would have been animals in the street. They couldn't just go to the gents or to the ladies and turn on the tap and wash their hands. No, they needed these big jars of water there in order to wash before they went to the meal. And Jesus says to the servants, he says, go on guys, fill up these water jars. These water jars which would have held probably from about 100 to 120 liters. So they fill up these six water jars. And then he says, well, take some of the water to the master of the banquet. And so they take some of the water to the master of the banquet. I guess that's a bit like the, the best man or maybe the, the wedding planner. And so they take it to the wedding planner and his eyes absolutely just pop open because he can smell all of the aromas and all of the notes. And when he tastes the wine, he realizes that it is an incredible vintage. This is absolutely brilliant stuff. So he calls the groom over and he says, come over, buddy, what are you doing here? You know, everybody else, well, they, they give out the good wine first. And then once people have had a little bit too much to drink, then they bring out the cheap plonk. But you've done the opposite. You've put out the cheap stuff first, and now you've left the best to last. What are you doing? Well, I, I suppose many of us will have been to parties where it says BYOB, bring your own bottle. You take along a, a bottle of wine or a bottle of orange juice or whatever you'd like to drink or you think others would like to drink. Well, Jesus here has produced in the region of 600 liters of the most exquisite wine. That's like taking 800 bottles with you to the party. It's an incredible, an incredible miracle which Jesus has done here. That could easily be worth over 200,000 Hong Kong dollars. Now, it is a miracle which Jesus has done. This is something which really happened. So I'm, I'm not going to try and give some pseudo-scientific explanation for what happened. This isn't a metaphor for some kind of spiritual reality. No, this is an eyewitness account of a real event that really happened. A miracle is when God does something that we can't understand. Now, that doesn't mean that God is breaking the laws of physics. No, God invented the laws of physics and he's able to work around them in, to, to, in order to do things that we simply don't understand. Now, now for me, as, as someone who comes from a scientific background, as I said earlier, I studied engineering science, for me, this isn't really a problem. I just assume that the God who, who made the whole world, who made the universe, the black holes, the stars, the millions of different species have, that we have in this world, that that God is able to do things that we don't understand because, after all, he made the atoms and the molecules, and so it's not surprising that he might be able to turn water into wine. And, and I think about the kinds of technology that we have today, the, the incredible things that we've been able to do as humanity. We've put someone on the moon, we've split the atom, we can do heart transplants, we can speak to people on the other side of the world using our phones. Well, that kind of technology would have seemed, frankly, supernatural 2,000 years ago. And just think at the rate of which technology is, is progressing. And just think of the kinds of, you know, reality warping technology that humanity might have discovered in 1,000 or 2,000 years' time. That might seem almost supernatural to us. So the idea that God can do stuff that we don't understand, that we don't fully comprehend, 
well, that seems perfectly reasonable and normal to me. And in fact, I, I think you can put it on its head and say, if somebody came to earth and they claimed to be God, well, they jolly well better be able to do some kind of miracle to show that they're not just another person. You know, there's so many people who claim to be God, who claim to be a Messiah or some kind of deity, but so often those people are sadly mentally unwell or, or deluded in some kind of way. They can't do miracles. The fact that they can't do anything special proves that they're just another person. Conversely, for Jesus, the fact that he's able to do miracles proves his identity. And in many ways, that's John's assumption right the way through the book. You might well know that the book of John is structured around six, sorry, not six, eight, seven or eight different miracles, different signs which Jesus performs. So John is working on this assumption that the miracles are really important. And actually, the, the key verse or the purpose statement in John's gospel is Jesus did many other miracles which are not recorded in this book, but that these are recorded that you might believe in him and have life in his name. But John assumes that we need to hear about the miracles because the miracles prove Jesus' identity and as a result, it's reasonable for us to place our faith in him. But isn't it interesting what a miracle Jesus chooses to do? The very first miracle that he does to show that he's God and to show what kind of God he is, is a miracle where he produces hundreds of liters of the most exquisite and extraordinary wine. You see, I think that sometimes we really do have this idea that God is an angry man up in the sky, looking down on us, trying to spoil our fun, that church is a boring place where boring people go to do boring things. Well, frankly, sometimes church can be boring and Christians can be boring. But Jesus, Jesus is not boring at all. Jesus, instead, is an amazing, an amazing saviour. So look with me at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, through this incredible sign, Jesus was showing what kind of God he really was. He was displaying his glory. And as we look through the Old Testament time and time and time again, the Old Testament describes life after death. It describes the new heavens and the new earth as an incredible party with God forever. So take, for example, Isaiah 25, which says... On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Now, much of Isaiah is admittedly poetry. We're not meant to take it literalistically. But we do know that the new heavens and the new earth will be a physical reality. And so even if it is is not one long, long party. There will be wonderful wine for us to drink in the new heavens and the new earth. It's described like this because it will be a time of never-ending pleasure. You see, Jesus has not come to spoil our fun. Instead, he's come to give us life to the max. He says later on in John's Gospel, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. 
And the reason why Jesus can do that is because he is the creator God. You see, do this for me for a moment. Imagine or picture the thing that, that gives you untold joy in life that gives you excitement, that gives you a sense of exhilaration, that sends a chill down your spine. Now, I don't know what that might be. Maybe it's the incredible beauty of this created world. Maybe it's a, a sunset, or a glacier, or a volcano, or the northern lights. Or maybe it's, it's pleasure, enjoying a fantastic meal, or a bottle of wine, or sex, or sun tanning on the beach, or going to the gym and pumping iron. Or maybe it's knowledge, reading a really good book, or being gripped by a fantastic film. Or maybe it's doing a job that you find really stimulating and challenging that helps you to grow. Or maybe it's relationships, it's family, and friendship, and romance. Well, all of those things, all of those things ultimately have been created by God for us to enjoy. In fact, time and time again, the Bible tells us and instructs us to enjoy things like food and sex and family with thankfulness to God because He's given those things to us. More than that, the Bible tells us that as author and architect of this created world, that all of these good things are actually just pointers and shadows to the ultimate pleasure, which is God himself. That's why the new heavens and the new earth are described as an eternal banquet which goes on where Jesus is the groom and God's people are the bride. It's because God himself is the true pleasure. Now, I know at this point some people will come back to me and say, well, well Al, if, if God has made this world with so much pleasure, if he's made this world for us to enjoy ourselves, if they're meant to be so many good things, well then, why is there so much unhappiness in this world? Why are so many people not enjoying themselves? Why is there so much evil and suffering? And it's, it's because, the Bible says, that even though God made a good world, what humanity did was turn from a good creator God and instead of enjoying the, the world in the way that he designed, that we've turned away our, to our own evil way and rejected him and rebelled against him. Because of those sinful deeds that we've done, suffering and heartache has come into this world. The suffering and heartache isn't because of what God has done, but ultimately that humanity is responsible. But because God loves this world so very much, he has a plan to restore it. And that is what Jesus was referring to when he talked about his hour. You see, the hour that Jesus referred to, that hour of his glorification, was in fact the hour on the cross. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, where well, he died an excruciatingly painful human death, but much more than that, there was a spiritual reality which was taking place. When Jesus died, it's as though he went to hell. He paid for the sins of the whole world so that whoever believes in him might escape punishment for the things that they've done which are wrong and instead might have eternal life. Eternal life in the new creation where everything is put right, where there's never-ending joy, where all of our tears are wiped away and we have a perfect and pure relationship with God. 
That is what God has planned for us through Jesus Christ. And so, so often, the problem is not that we want pleasure too much. Instead, it's, it's in the word of C.S. Lewis that we're too easily pleased. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, the, the children's author and the, the English scholar wrote. He said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's not trying to limit our joy. He's trying to show us and give us untold joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you're here today and and you're a Christian, then I, I think the reality for us is that sometimes it is tempting to look at what the world is doing and to see people seem to be enjoying themselves and to think, well, maybe God's holding those things back from me. I'd like to do those things, but he's told me not to do that. Why is that? And we need to just remind ourselves that God isn't like that. He's not trying to hold good things back. Remember that that is the way that Satan managed to deceive Eve in the Garden of Eden by saying that, look, God's holding good things back from you. That's not the truth. God has got your long-term joy in mind. The things that he tells us not to do in the present, the here and the now, is because he knows that those things ultimately, even if they look reasonable, are destructive. He wants the very best for you. Will you trust him? Well, for others of us here, perhaps you're, you're a guest or a visitor, can I add my welcome to that of Carl's and Hewoo's? It's really good to have you here. All of the good things in this world are created by God for us to enjoy. He really wants us to enjoy those things. He's a good, he's a good God. But the good things in this world are not ultimate things. Instead, they are pointers to God himself. You know, you'll only find true meaning and true satisfaction and true fulfillment in a relationship with the God who made you and who loves you. You'll only find it in Him. And if we put the created things and make them as ultimate things, well, in the end, they become distorted and twisted. And those things that are meant to be sweet become bitter in our mouth. Well, we'd love you to keep on thinking about these things. If you've come with a member here, why not ask them about these things? Or why not come back next week? Why not attend the Christianity Explored, which is starting next week? Jesus has not come to kill our thumb. No, he's come to give us life to the max. He says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are an incredible creator, God, that you make so many good things that are wonderful. We praise you and thank you for those things. Forgive us for those times when we assume that you must be out to limit our fun or spoil our fun. Help us to see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, this world is being restored and that you've given us life to the max. We praise you and thank you. Amen.